a Podcast One production. To understand Australia's political system, it would be a good idea to understand the parties. So let's do it. My next guest on Peacock Politics is one of the most recognisable names in Australian politics of modern times. He's labour through and through, rising through the party ranks to become a hugely influential senior minister and power broker. Now he writes for The Australian and he's a Sky News presenter, host of Richo, 8pm Eastern on Wednesday nights. Graham Richardson, thanks for your time. Should I be worried by the notion or the word power broker? No, somebody's got a broke power. Um, <laughs> Uh, in the end, a uh, power broker simply means someone who uh, uh, who assists prime ministers to get into their job and then assists them to get out of it. <laughs> I think that's the best way of describing it. Fair enough. Um, so I shouldn't be worried about my job sitting on this side. No, of no, it. no. I think you do pretty well. <laughs> Excellent. Take us right back to, mentioned there, your Labor through and through. What ideals was the Labor Party formed on in Australia as you understand it? Well, it was formed out of the Dockers and Shearer strikes of the 90s in Australia. And so... It was always a union-based party, uh, which was formed to try and make sure those who didn't necessarily share in great prosperity at least had enough to get by on with dignity. That's how I would describe the Labor Party's foundation and how I'd hope I can still describe it today. Why are people attracted to become part of it like you were? Well, in my case, you couldn't do anything else. I mean, my father was a union secretary, and so I grew up in a Labor household. And uh, going to join the party was just what you did. I never dreamt when I joined it that um, the career I'd have uh, was ever going to happen because I, I mean, well, people will find it hard to hear. I'm not a very ambitious person. I was never ambitious. Things just happened to me along the way. <laughs> Opened up with the ideals that it was formed upon. How has it rolled with the times? How has it moved with the times um, in the, what is it now, 120 years since the 1890s yeah, it's I been th- in existence? I think um, the party has by and large held to its ideals. It's had its bumps. I don't think that the period of Kevin Rudd was a great Labor period. There was an attempt during that period to lessen the uh, payments to single mothers, which I found particularly appalling and which Anthony Albanese threatened to cross the floor over because he, of course, was brought up in a single-parent family by his mum. And uh, while it's, I might say, flippant, but, you know, common to regard single mums as teenagers having baby after baby with different fathers in the western suburbs, the reality's vastly different. It's women in their 30s who have been left with two or three kids and who really struggle. And... If Labor has a purpose, it's to make sure those women and their kids have a future. So it's looking after people, looking after not only workers' rights, but people as well. That's a, yeah. that's a thought of the, the Labor Party. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, like, my, my dad always said to me, he always figured I'd be something, and he died when I was quite young. He died when I was 22. But he, uh, he always said to me that your job is to help those people who can't help themselves. He was a postal workers' union secretary at a time when we used the mail, but, you know, pre-internet, um, when uh, the postie mattered. So he represented um, mail sorters and, and people like that. And uh, they were very low paid. Very often the latest wave of migrants to hit the country were, uh, came into that, uh, that job. And um, I think uh, I learned a lot from him. And he expected me to look after people like that and I I hope if he's watching he's satisfied with my efforts. 
sure he'd be okay with them, I dare say. I think given he, I, he should be. I think um, I, uh, I always tried to make sure we looked after people. You know, because not everyone is going to have the IQ, but often it's just, it's not IQ even, it's, it's having that go in you, you know, to actually make a noise and, and improve your lot. Not everyone's going to have that, and, and so you have to be there for those people. What's the biggest difference you see between the two big parties in Australia, Labor side and also Liberal Party, which has had different names and incarnations over its existence, but same kind of idea of what it's well, about? The, the main, if, if you look at the two parties today, they really only compete on competence. And the only area of real dispute is industrial relations policy. Other than that, when you consider who you're going to vote for at the next election, it's about who can manage the economy and that sort of thing. And, you know, the Liberals have held sway on that for a long time, but less so today. I mean, under Morrison, the debt has blown out massively. And that's unthinkable, you would have thought, in earlier years for what Liberals are, are supposed to be about. Has that always been the case, that those divisions have been based on one main topic, industrial relations, or over time it's... Oh, no. Um, you, you recall things like Medicare, you know, the fight over public funding for health were a massive difference, and it wasn't until John Howard finally put his hand up and gave up the fight because he knew politically he had to. I think that was the last real battleground. Nowadays, it's about how much money you might put into health or how much money you put into education and where you put it. They're the arguments of the modern era, but it's not quite the same as the old days. What's the difference between the Labor Party in government and out of government? Out of government, you're entitled to probably go a little bit further than you will if you are in government. You're entitled to um, wax a little more lyrically because you can't act. Once you've actually got the power and you have to do the job you realise that some of your rhetoric might have been a, a little uh, over-flourished and you, uh, <laughs> you can walk back. Is that a daunting task if you're involved in that? It shouldn't be. Look, I, politicians, are, you're always called a backflip if you change your mind. It seems to me, no matter what form of endeavour you're engaged in, if someone comes to you and, with a better idea than yours, you'd be a mug to say, well, I'm going to hang on to my idea because it's mine. I mean, you should say, okay, you've got a better idea, I'll, um, I'll, I'll run with you. That's not a backflip. That's an intelligent course to take. It doesn't sound like that happens, though, from what I read, that it doesn't sound like that it happens that often, that, oh, they've come up with a good idea, we'll run with it, good on you, um, cheers for that. Very rarely. Um, very rarely. It's, it's, it's a sad thing that we, uh, we don't get much bipartisanship in Australian politics. We're seeing a little bit of it about Nauru at the moment, uh, which is good because it's a big issue and um, it has to be handled very carefully, not just emotionally, it's got to be handled carefully. And I note Bill Shorten has walked up and walked back. He has seen uh, some of the problems with it. Morrison, I might say, made the best speech he's made as Prime Minister about that and finally got himself back into the race. It looks like he's going to make a fight of the election. It seemed to me he was prepared to meekly submit to a slaughter at least now he'll fight. He still won't win, but he'll fight. And that's good for democracy. You shouldn't have a huge majorities. They don't do anyone any good. Just with the, the Labor Party, um, is it beholden to the union movement, given it was founded on that basis back in the 1890s? Well, it's certainly got to take the union movement into account. It'd be mad if it didn't. I mean, the union movement does represent a big core of its support, 
not all its support because the times have changed. And when I joined the party, 50% of people were in trade unions. There's now 15. So there's been a massive change. And largely that 15 are in public service. There's not much private membership. That's why unions like the metal workers and the miscellaneous workers um, dropped massively in numbers because, well, there's not much manufacturing going on, so it's hard to see metal workers. And when it comes to the missos, there's only so many cleaners you can have, although they, they merge with the liquor trades and there's still plenty of, of members of the liquor trades, although even a union like that is nothing like what it once was. I mean, I think when I joined the party, they had 50-something thousand members. They've got nothing like it now. I mean, the union movement has changed. I mean, I remember I worked in the pub at uh, Carlton, the Royal Hotel at Carlton, just up the road from the from where the Mighty Dragons play at Jubilee Oval. St George Rugby League, yeah. And um, I uh, I used to make sure that every one of them was in the union. I'd harangue them. <laughs> I'd take the forms around. I'd make them sign up. Um, and I wasn't a union delegate. I just did it because, you know, that's what I believe in. That's what you believed in. Has then I believe believe still yes. There's no past tense here. <laughs> With the changing nature then of the union movement, and given it was the the backbone of the Labor Party for a very long time, and and you mentioned those numbers, has that made the Labor Party weaker or stronger? Um, I think the Labor movement is a bit weaker than it once was, and that's sad. The Labor Party isn't going weak at the knees, though. It's fortunate it's sustained by more than the unions these days. And, uh, you know, it has plenty of uh, cause celebs to um, uh, get people to attach to it. So it fights on enough fronts to keep going. But it saddens me that people aren't in unions today. And uh, I wish there was something that could be done to reverse that trend. Does the Labor Party like having a big public sector, making government big? I think the Labor Party gave up on that a long time ago. I mean, I hate the phrase small government and all that. What you've got to do is have a government that is big enough to service the policies it's put in place. So it's not a matter of big or small, it's a matter mm. of, of, of being big enough, however big that might, might be. So I think um, uh, Labor's been, uh, been sensible about that. I don't, I don't think that they're crazy about big government. I don't think, I mean, if you look at Liberals, for instance, look at the number of consultants that have been employed under this government. Wow. It is breathtaking. I'm the only bugger in the country who hasn't got to quit out of this, you know? It's the greatest word in the English dictionary, consultant, no matter which way you look at it. Anyone's a consultant, (laughs) aren't they? And, um, I mean, there's an industry out there based on it these days. But, no, I I don't believe Labor's about big government anymore. I think it's just about efficiency like like the Liberals, I hope, should be because that's what we need. We need efficient government at a time when Australia is doing very well compared with the rest of the world. With Labor government going into government, there's a, a theory. I've tried not to do too much research on this because my research is what my guests say, basically. that That's what I want to find out. I'll come in with an empty mind and hopefully go out with a full mind. But one such comment I couldn't help but notice once, and you can refute or agree, uh, Labor Party promises big, spends big, governs poorly. Oh, that's rubbish. Um, Why? Um, it is not to say that we haven't had poor governments. I think Australia had a number of bad prime ministers in a row. You had uh, Abbott and you had Rudd and Gillard and you had Malcolm Turnbull. All of them were vastly inadequate. I think Morrison's a little better than those. Um, But no, we've been poorly led by both sides for quite a while. And 
I think if you look around the country now and you talk to people, they're crying out for leadership. They really want a leader. And they haven't had one in a bloody long time. Either side of politics. No, or Howard and uh, Hawke Keating were the last leaders that we've really had as Prime Ministers. We haven't had anybody since. What was, and you were heavily involved in the Hawke Keating years in particular, what was so good? What defined those eras from a Labor Party point of view? What defines every era, every successful era, is the amount of reform you do. If you don't reform, what are you there for? And there are things that always needs to be fixed. And just floating the dollar, which Labor did within weeks of coming to power, was a massive change, but it brought us into the world. Uh, you know, because you could no longer hide behind tariff barriers and, and pretend that the sheep's back was, was going to get you through or the digging up another quarry and mining something was going to be a great idea. You needed to do more. And I think Hawke and Keating both, you give them both credit, they were terrific at that. Um, Howard brought in um, the GST, which we wrongly opposed because it was a very good idea. They got in and did the hard things. How hard was it to admit, say, inside the Labor Party that an idea was good, like the GST, and then publicly, obviously, there was a campaign by Paul Keating to um, say it was rubbish and he all of a sudden... That's right. He he campaigned against fight back, which was a GST plus, admittedly. I mean, it was massive cutbacks in in practically every portfolio. As they say of Houston's, it was the longest suicide note in political history. It was crazy. And people reflected on it and only remember the GST. But it wasn't just the GST. Mm. It was massive cuts to everybody. And in the end, you can't do that. A mob will never wear it. Um, So it was politically dumb. And Keating played that up and got what he wanted. But he always wanted a GST. And, you know, he'd said so. If you remember, remember going through the famous options back at the tax summit that um, uh, uh, Bob Hall called, you know, Paul always wanted it. Um, in fact, I remember I'd never been on AM, but when his tax push was failing... The radio show? Yeah. yeah. Um, he said, um, I want you to go on AM and, and say something, because AM mattered in those days. It doesn't today. I haven't listened to it for years, actually. Pod- podcasts matter these days. The podcasts yeah. are big, aren't they? Yeah. And it's funny, because uh, I just remember that I, I went on and I said, the tax system has had it. It's stuffed. And that, that were my opening words and my first foray into AM, which, you know, meant I really hit the big time. Uh, it's, my, it's amazing the yardstick you set yourself. There's that. And then there, there was being interviewed on the Sunday interview by Laurie Oakes. That was the other thing you had to, you hadn't made it until Laurie Oakes had asked you to be interviewed. With the Labor Party. Now it's Adam Peacock. You have yeah, it, well. <laughs> Yep, hard-hitting stuff as I sit here in a T-shirt and train us. Um, with, with those years with the Labor Party, um, they seemed successful outside looking in with, with Hawke and Keating um, at the forefront. Is the Labor Party a, a type of, I'll call it an organisation, a movement, whatever you want to call it, that needs a strong, strong leader? I think every political party functions better with one. They don't come along very often. I mean, I've been around a long time and I can think of Neville Rand, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, but I can't think of many more. Um, Daniel Andrews is entering that 
phase. The Victorian Premier. He's proving to be a phenomenon. But there aren't many, are there? I mean, if you, if you think back, uh, there are precious few sort of great leaders. Mm. And um, Labor was very fortunate not only to have them, but during that period to really have a strong cabinet. You know, the, the, it, it's no accident that you had Button and Grimes and Walsh and, and Dawkins and Karen, et cetera. These were very clever people, Duffy. I mean, you could go on. They were good. You know, there, there was a cabinet that was a real heavyweight group. The cabinet being the, the main support staff, the supporting actors, if you like, to the... Yeah, well, you've got to have it. Um, I mean, uh, Kevin Rudd effectively tried to abolish cabinet government and, and have the gang of four and they would make decisions and he would only call a cabinet and have their decisions and he'd just have the decision down and saying, for your agreement. Uh, Why doesn't that wash with the Labor Party then? Shouldn't wash with anyone. The idea of cabinet government in the Westminster system is to make sure that every policy is tested, to make sure there's debate. And if you think about it, if you've got a table, there's Hawke and Keating, and then there's Gareth Evans and John Button and Don Grimes and Michael Duffy and, dare I say, Robert Ray and I, and pl- plenty of people who, who weren't stupid. If you weren't going to give yourself a mention, I would have given you a uh, No, well, I mean, oh, mm. it's not big-headed, it's just facts. I was in the Cabinet. So, <laughs> I mean, look, you've got to have a proper Cabinet and uh, you've got to make sure you put everything before it. And Keating, to his credit, always did. I mean, Hawke was always going to because Hawke's style was that of bringing everyone in, whereas Keating was much more the elitist. But nonetheless, when it came to his cabinet, I would have to say that he was every bit as good as Bob Hawke. He, he made sure that the cabinet had a say. Now, he didn't like it when the cabinet overruled him. Um, and, uh, Can you I, remember I some get, times? I did get the odd phone call of hysterical abuse for daring to cross the great man. What were they like? Because that's pre-mobile phone when the name flashes up on the screen so you know what's coming. So you pick up the phone blind and then bang, right. it's just bang. diatribe. Oh, you, you, you know after the first word who it is. Because uh, Keating and Rand were the two who could give you the most expletive-filled <laughs> character references. I remember taking a candidate for a by-election. He was a, a farmer from outside of Dubbo. And uh, I brought him down to meet Neville Rand. And Neville and I got into a discussion about who was going to be the advertising agency, who he wanted and who I was going to appoint. And we had a massive route, which was, of course, expletive filled. I have been known to use bad language. I know that would shock you, but it has, has occasionally slipped out. We had this massive fight, and he actually said to me, oh, I don't know if I can take this. I don't know if I should, <laughs> I should run. And I said to him, mate, you've got to get used to this sort of stuff. This is politics. Went on in here to, to kiss in, in the ring. Mm. It, I did. Who, who's the advertising agency? is a big deal. But I, I'm, I was the secretary of the party. I paid the bill, so... I picked the agency and I, I told him that. He didn't like it much, but there you go. But Neville and I got along pretty well. He was an amazing character. There was a time I brought the upper house ticket to him when I was secretary of the party and because I, I always let the leader have one out of effectively eight. I always let the leader have one. So I took him up the ticket I had and um, there was a woman called Kath Anderson was on it and uh, he said he wasn't having her and he made a few very uncomplimentary things to say about her and... He wanted somebody else who turned out to be a Labor rat. And uh, 
when she died, he spoke at a funeral and he said he could never understand why the powers that be had dropped her from the ticket. <laughs> and so everyone looked at me as if I was the villain here and he was the bugger who'd, who'd done it. But, but that was now, I, I had a go at him over that and he said, oh, I forgot. <laughs> um, so very hard to have a go at him. With forming policy with the Labor Party, how is it done? What's it based upon when you're discussing an idea when you're in government or even with that out of government to form a policy around a certain subject? Well, there's, there's different ways. I mean, there's, there's party policy, which you come in to implement, which has been sorted out over a period of time and which everyone knows. Is that current uh, or is that conferences. No, that's always. You know, the federal conference will pass something and you're stuck with it. Give us an example of, of, of how you... Well, I mean, you know, Richard Miles had to get up and argue very strongly at the conference about refugees. Otherwise, you would have had a resolution carried by a lot of the lefties there that would have never had us on the government benches. Mm. And, you know, it needed a powerful uh, bloke like uh, Richard, uh, who I can see leadership qualities in, uh, to get up and have a real go, and he did. And we narrowly averted um, a crisis. So you form that policy there, and then it gets taken, and you have to follow it through yep. wherever you're sitting. That's yeah, that's, that's right. Black I mean, and white. And it's it's like uranium debates of the eighties, early eighties. You know the massive debates that were held on them. The only time I've been spat on, you know, because I was in support of uranium mining. I mean, you ever heard anyone mention it in the last twenty five years? Because I haven't. No. Um, apparently, it was a big deal then, though. But we had some massive blues about it, but it was a much more sensible time because we, the alleged party reforms we've gone on to, you know, where you've got a million people going to the conference. When you had a hundred and they were people that had some clout, I think you got better decision making and it was less untidy. I'm only waiting for the time when the national conference does something really crazy because it will. What an idea that they come yeah, up with and just, it's just hard just to follow through branches on. Get, you know... I remember there's a very prominent MP who said to me that as a kid he used to come down to conference with his father knowing that he didn't have to worry about all the stupid resolutions from the branches because the right-wing unions would kill him. And um, essentially he was right. I mean, if you're sitting in a branch meeting, I mean, it's very easy to pass a a resolution calling on the nationalisation of the Commonwealth Bank or something. It's Mm. easy. You know, you can can do that because there's only 15 of you in the room and eight of you are crazy, so bang, you, you get it done. And then it comes to a conference. and A national conference where you have to or, set your or policy. A state conference, whatever, but it's my, it always was my job to make sure that that sort of rubbish didn't get through. <laughs> How did you do that? Well, I'll give you an example. We, we had a special federal conference on opening Telstra up to competition. It was tied, you know, because I, I did, always did the count and it was tied. And so I was talking to a very good friend who's a West Australian billionaire, is dead now, and I mentioned to him our dilemma, and he said, oh, I'll, I'll get you this bloke. Now, this bloke's name was Kevin, I can't remember his second name, and he was the secretary of the the BLF in Western Australia and had gone on to be the BWIU, which is now the CFMEU. So it's a union over in WA. Yeah, Western yeah. Australian, but, but, you know, very militant union. <laughs> and uh, I, I sat down with this bloke. We had dinner in a suite at the uh, Hyatt, in Canberra, knocked off a $2,000 bottle of cognac. As you do. Uh, both got terribly pissed, but uh, he gave his word to vote for us. And I told Hawkey and Keating the next morning, they said, bullshit, he won't vote for us. This bloke's a hardline lefty. But, of course, he put his hand up 
and we narrowly got through. And that was the sort of thing I, um, I did. If we were in strife, it was always my job to find a way out. Factions within, and it's along the lines, but factions within the Labor Party, how have they proven to bring about disunity or unity within no, the I, Labor I Party No, I think factions are, are a good thing because if you go back to the Whitlam government and its first budget, uh, Frank Crean presented the budget. You know, you've got the budget speech, you know, with X thousand copies printed, and um, he, had, he had to pencil in three changes because the caucus didn't like three things in the budget. Caucus being the party room meeting. The party room meeting. Yep. And uh, um, that's crazy. You can't, you can't do that. So <laughs> um, factions uh, make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen. But who organises factions if, if there's well, different I, I views within? the right, the national right. The national right within the Labor Party. So yep. it's considered the more moderate side yeah. of Labor Party. And then the sensible was... side. <laughs> um, we, we, um, we're, we're the ones who want to see Labor in government and put that as the priority rather than put some, some of the, uh, the policies that, um, that are heroic but won't be accepted by the mob. And the... Uh, the mob being the electorate. The national faction was formed in my room, 1002, of the uh, casino in Hobart, Rest Point. Hobart? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we had two conferences in Hobart. So what do you do? Gather around people? Let's, yeah, let's I just got get our heads in. Mob in and I said, listen, the left are too well organised and we aren't. And it's time we, uh, we got organised. Did that bring about an internal war of, of such within the uh, Labor Party? No, that war was already there. It was just that we, were, we weren't very well organised. Suddenly we had battalions. We had known generals. I find that weird that, that there's all this going on within just to form majority thought within the realm of one party when I would have thought it's just the one side operating against the other big side, which is the Liberal Party or the coalition. Well, your, your main job is to fight Liberals. My um, main focus was never anything but fighting Liberals. But you've got to make sure you're fighting them with the right ammunition. You've got to make sure that you've got the weaponry. And uh, I, so I had to make sure that, uh, you know, we didn't have guns that didn't work. I wanted to make sure we could hit targets. And so um, you have to clean up your own show and then turn your guns on, all your guns on the enemy. Has it always been the case that the Labor Party's had such factions within? I think, you know, if you go back to the split with the DLP and things, yes. DLP. I mean, the, the, the Democratic Labor Party in Victoria, uh, which kept Menzies' government in power for years and years. How's that? Because they were splintered? Well, uh, they, were, they were a splinter off us and they gave their, uh, they were a Catholic splinter off us and they gave uh, their preferences to Menzies and beyond. How could a splinter of... Because of the bitterness of the split. Okay. The split was an incredibly bitter time. So they hated the Labor Party that much that they went against oh, the yeah. Labor Party, isn't it? Yeah. That, would that happen today, ever? Or would that happen in the future? Oh, yeah, of course it can. Um, you know, you get trots. People like that, they don't like the Labor Party being in government because it's, um, they'd much rather tear down a, a, uh, a Liberal. They see that as the bigger fight. So, so they, they, they only opposite. have half a fight with us. They, get, they want to have a real fight. <laughs> I don't get that. <laughs> no, it's understanding the mind of a trot who... Obviously, is crazy to start with. A trot, a trotskyist. Okay, yep. <laughs> right. If you, you, the trots are mad anyway, so you can't understand them. I don't understand them. Who, who could? I thought and you it, meant the trots on a like a Saturday night at Glen Derby or something. Harold Park, no. Park the, the, no. the sport of harness racing. Menangle now. There's no Harold Park. So the, the trotskyists. So does, do those do those factions look at it in modern day terms? Uh, 
defections have the chance of, of splitting the Labor Party within? Nah. Because you look at Liberal Party side of things and it looks like there's a few branching off to become what they want to be Yeah, but they're, within not, that they're not taking anyone with them. Corey Bernardi didn't take anyone. Julia Banks, who cares? I mean, th- th- these are not significant figures. In our show, there's no possibility of a split. When I was fighting the left as a young bloke, um, I was fighting a left led by people called Arthur Geetzel and Bruce Charles, who were actually members of the Communist Party. They were joint ticket holders. That's a different fight today. The leader of the left is Anthony Albanese, is one of my best mates. <laughs> so it's a little more moderate, the, and, the well, left, no, as you I mean, call it. The, the left is just oh, infinitely different to what it was when I was a young bloke. So with the Labor Party, the, the, the ideal of it, and everyone comes into it with the, the thought of helping that cause, sometimes it can splinter off, but at the moment it's all in the, on the one track. Mm. Everybody's focused on beating Scott Morrison. How strident do you become about the Labor Party once you're in it? Is it very hard to fall out of love with being in the Labor Party oh, once I, you're in I it? I couldn't ever not be in it. I mean, I'm a life member now, but whether I was a life member or not, I'm a member for life because I couldn't possibly leave it. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for the Labor Party, would I? I mean, it's, it's not as if I'm so brilliant that this would have all happened no matter where I went. I had a Labor tag on me, and that's what gave me all the opportunities to live the life I've led. Is your doomsday a, a coalition government in, in your mind? Is that the, the worst thing that can happen to Australia? No. Um, the worst thing that can happen to Australia is a recession or or uh, something like that. I mean, that, 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 that's... I don't want people to hurt. Uh, so recessions are where you get lots of people out of work and lots of people struggle, and I, I would never want to see that. And we've had recessions under both parties. Let's not pretend that uh, it belongs to one side. I mean, it can happen to anyone. Do you even like the Liberals? Oh, I like plenty of Liberals. I've been a mate of Scott Morrison's for a long time. I was never a mate of Malcolm Turnbull's. I didn't like him the first time I met him 35 years ago and nothing's happened in the intervening 35 years to change my view. Um, but Morrison's a great bloke. Frydenberg's a terrific bloke, a really decent human being. Just don't agree with their ideas. No, I just... And, and you have to be able to separate the person from the ideas. You know, uh, Morrison is uh, an extremely proud Christian and a vowed right-wing person. Well, good on him. I mean, he's... This is a democracy. You're entitled to be wrong. <laughs> Graham Richardson, it's been fascinating uh, to give a bit of background about the Labor Party and where they're at at the moment, where they've been in the past. Thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. Anytime. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.